Welcome back to the Christmas Bunker Gold mini-series, our hand-picked selection of podcast episodes from the past couple of years that you might have missed. Christmas means James Bond movies, obviously, and in the wake of No Time to Die, our own Bond fiends, Arthur Snell and Ros Taylor, talk to the editor of the International Journal of James Bond Studies about 007's questionable roots and his, or her, hazy future. This one is full of huge No Time to Die spoilers, so do not listen unless you've already seen it. From October 2021... This is Bond on the Run. Does Britain still need 007? Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. As I was planning this podcast, I caught sight of an Aston Martin DB5 on the shelf, property of my son, one of James Bond's younger fans, who can even play the start of the theme tune on his guitar now. I love the Daniel Craig movies too, but no one can deny there's a lot about Bond that is problematic, and not just because he's a white male. The way the rest of the world becomes a playground for fantasies of British dominance. The racism and attitudes towards women in the earlier films. The mythologising of the British establishment. I could go on, and we will, but there will be spoilers for the latest film, No Time to Die, so if you haven't seen the film and you want to, press the stop button now or you will certainly regret it. Joining me today are Arthur Snell, a regular bunker presenter and a former expression of British soft power as the British High Commissioner to Trinidad and Tobago. Hi, Arthur. Hi there. That was very soft power in that particular case. (laughs) The softer the better, surely. (laughs) And Ian Kinane, editor of the International Journal of James Bond Studies and a senior lecturer in English literature at the University of Roehampton. Ian, welcome to the bunker. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. When did Bond first get under your skin? It's a really appropriate kind of terminology, given uh, some of the plot points of No Time to Die, which I'm sure we'll delve into. But it was back when I was 10 or 11, and I was sitting in a friend's house on a Saturday afternoon, you know, one of those afternoons where you don't have much to do. And he, he decided to flick on the TV, and there was Pierce Brosnan's first Bond, Goldeneye. And we were at the age where we thought this was quite a kind of a, a humorous, exotic ride, and we kind of enjoyed it. And, and then from there, I sort of just poked and prodded my parents until they finally gave in and took me to the next film, Tomorrow Never Dies, which was screening in 1997 in cinemas. So that's that's my sort of earliest introduction to the film. Arthur, what was your first encounter with Bond? Well, I'm going to show my age here a bit. So back in the dim distant past when there was something called Betamax, which was a type of video recorder, we were staying, I think, with some relatives at Christmas time. And, and there was a Betamax video of The Spy Who Loved Me. That came out in the late 70s, I believe. And so it was already quite an old film. And then I, the first Bond movie that I saw at the cinema was Octopussy, which I think was in 1983. So very much in that kind of Roger Moore pantomime era of, of Bond movies. For me, I think it was Christmas afternoon and they always showed a Bond movie usually on ITV at that time. And my father always had to watch it. My mother loathed Bond, uh, but he would watch it uh, despite being slightly embarrassed about it. And that was when I became, I suppose, fascinated with the character. Arthur, what is it that's, that's fascinated you about the character over the years? Well, it's certainly something you grow up with. So as a kid, it's just the amazing exoticism and the heroism. And I suppose as you get a bit older, the beautiful women as well. But also it's something about Britain always winning. And if you were growing up in the the, the slightly grimmer periods of the 1980s, it was quite nice to have this this sort of parallel universe in which Britain seemed to be effortlessly superior. If I think where, where I am now, I think it's what's fascinating is, of course, that it's a much more complex expression 
of Englishness, of Britishness, and the films have evolved over over time. And in a way, they reflect in an interesting way uh, the events of the era that they're made in. Let's get straight to the things that totally shook me in No Time to Die. Bond dies, which I had a great deal of difficulty in, in believing I couldn't quite bring myself to. And not only that, but there's a child in the movie, which I think is pretty unprecedented. I can't think of another movie, uh, Bond movie, in which that happens. Ian, how did you react to those uh, those those developments? I have to admit, and maybe I'm in I'm in the minority here, but I left No Time to Die feeling more disappointed than in any other Craig film, including Quantum of Solace, which, by the way, I think is an underrated gem. In terms of a Bond fathering a child, one might probably think, well, duh, at long last. I mean, how often has he got his leg over <laughs> some exotic beauty? He probably has many fatherless children in all parts of the world. Um, so to me, that really didn't strike me as shocking, uh, as in some ways inevitable. And they're sort of leaning hard in the last few years from Skyfall Inspector into this kind of family values idea of Bond. You know, you had Judy Dench, who was a kind of a veritable mother figure to Bond. And you had Bond's sort of evil twin brother, you know, the, the spy gone rogue in Javier Bardem's role, Silva, in Skyfall. And then they lent even more heavily into that inspector where the, the arch nemesis bond's arch nemesis blofeld played by christoph waltz is in fact his foster brother and i think so having 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 a child i think sort of extends this idea of, of the bond not just the bond universe but the bond family so to speak his death now on the other hand as, as much as i've been quoted numbers t- a number of times talking about the kind of the only logical development for this character really in a britain that doesn't belong to him anymore is death is extinction it's still nevertheless shocked me i was still thrown by it and i waited with bated breath to the very end of the closing credits to see will those famous lines appear at the end james bond will return and i was doubtful but sure enough at the very end of the credits we are assured that james bond will return so now we're at this really interesting i think juncture as to where the series and the franchise might go from here be it backwards turning it into a kind of period piece set in the 50s or whether this is just the end of 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 a particular continuum of daniel craig's bond stories and the next ones will pick up with whoever whichever actor in the is in the lead but they will pick up in a sort of parallel universe to craig's bond in which let's say whoever this new bond will be will inevitably presumably be alive I know what you mean by that, because I certainly left less elated, less exhilarated than I would normally expect to feel at the end of a modern Bond movie. Arthur, what did you think of it? Uh, I, I really loved it. So I'm going to have to disagree with Ian. I I maybe found it to be my favourite Bond movie, although that, you know, that, that's vying with The Living Daylight. So, it, uh, I, you know, that might be a controversial uh, choice. <laughs> um, but no, I, I thought... I thought it combined lots of really good things that hadn't been present in recent Bond movies. So it was actually quite funny, whereas quite a lot of the Daniel Craig of felt rather sort of dour and, and, and you know, not, not very amusing. So I thought that was good. And I thought that having a properly sort of bonkers uh, villain who wanted to sort of kill everyone on planet Earth, as far as I could tell, uh, that was good because that took you back to the old style James Bond where there was always a, a, a secret there on an island. And again, you know, we had an island. So I thought that was all amazing. In terms of the the ending and, and, and his death, I mean, I was probably like loads of viewers, I was 
convinced that he would pull something out of the bag. Even even when the missiles were raining in, I was sure he was going to, you know, wriggle away somehow. I have to admit, and, and this may be a, a heretical thing to say in a sort of James Bond fan podcast, which I think we, we, we can be honest about what, what we're doing here. I felt quite relieved. I thought, well, that's a good film. They've been a great run of movies. They've said almost everything you could ever say about England, about Britain, about action movies. They've had a range of really good leading actors, all who've brought their own thing to it. So it would be fine if that was the end of the Bond series. Now, I, obviously, Ian sat to the end of the credits, which I didn't, so he can confirm that I was wrong and there will be some more. I think it was very transgressive of them to kill him off, but I thought, you know, why not? Um, you know, this thing doesn't have to have to go on forever. So No Time to Die was not only transgressive because he dies, but it was touted as a real break with the past. I mean, the new 007 is a black woman and Bond is able to work with her on more or less equal terms, which has not always happened in the past with female characters in Bond. Ian, has Bond's record, though, with women pre-Craig, let's say, been straightforwardly problematic, or is it more complicated than that? I mean, I think as with anything that runs for 60, 70 years, it can never be one thing or another. I will say, by and large, the kind of the, 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 the reputation of Bond, a sleazy womanizer, as laid down in the Connery era in the 60s, the series hasn't really done that much to throw off that mantle. One thinks back cringing uh, with great difficulty to 1964's Goldfinger where uh, Connery smacks the actress Margaret Nolan on the bum and sort of sends her on her way saying you know man talk it's time for it's time for the men to kind of get together and have a chat one really can't countenance that nowadays in terms of kind of Bond's historical uh, relationship to women, it's, I've always found it very interesting because the, the Bond canon has been seen on the one hand to be a kind of vehicle for understanding, uh, I, I suppose, modern or contemporary iterations of, of masculinity. So each of the different Bond actors, the lead actors, have in some ways conveyed to us the kind of masculine ethos of their eras. I think it's more problematic when we, we, we come to look to the female characters. I mean, it's often been claimed, indeed, each successive film has said, this film is it when it comes to the strongest, the most badass female characters there have actually been. And I think it's sort of like the, the boy or girl, in, in, in this case, who cried wolf. You know, we don't believe that claim anymore, that each successive Bond girl is going to be the saviour of, of this franchise, which has largely been, you know, mired in its misogyny. You know, you think, for instance, attempts to intellectualise or, or to make a bit more grand some of these characters. One thinks of Denise Richards' character, Dr. Christmas Jones, in The World Is Not Enough. Now, aside from the ridiculous name, I mean... She is a nuclear physicist, but none of the fans seem to remember her for this. They only, and I can hear you laughing in the background, precisely this reason, that any attempt to intellectualize a Bond character or, or a Bond female character, is, it always results in a kind of a chuckle, as if it's a kind of a joke we're all in on, uh, that we're all in on, that these women just are there for one thing and one thing only. And I think one of the things, now whether or not this is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's interference, one of the things No Time to Die does extremely well is professionalize Bond's relationship with women. So there's that wonderful scene uh, in Cuba where Bond meets Ana de Armas's character, Paloma. And it's very clear that it's played for laughs. She's a very charming actress. She kind of jokingly says, oh, I've only had, you know, three weeks of training. And then, you know, they're right into the fray of things. But actually, the film plays on the audience quite cleverly there because 
you know, there is that sense, oh, is this going to be another instance of, of a woman who has to take second fiddle to Bond in these action sequences? But Paloma gives as good as Bond, if not better, and they're both swigging shots the whole way through. Same, same with Nomi, Lashana Lynch's character, the new 007. And while I thought, you know, there was an awful lot of expectations riding on her shoulders as the first black British actress to play 007, I think because of the kind of the, the sort of the paunchy nature of the script, two and a half, two and three quarters hours even, very kind of bloated storyline, trying to drag everything in together, I don't think that Nomi got really the time to kind of show her character beyond a few kind of minor quips with Bond. But I will say, I think... Um, Lea Seydoux's performance as, as Madeleine Swan uh, was absolutely outstanding. And I think it shows the direction in which female characters and female-driven stories in the Bond franchise can actually go. Because for me, uh, while I didn't buy the romance between Bond and Seydoux in 2015 Spectre, I thought it was outstanding in this. And I thought Lea Seydoux delivered the best performance by an actress we've seen in the, in the Bond franchise's history. I thought she did, although one of the problems with this, with No Time to Die, for me, was the different registers in it. I mean, as you say, that episode with the, uh, with, with the fight was, was, was slapstick almost. And then it somehow, it tips into profound emotion. And I had, I suppose I had problems just because, because often the films are fairly one note. I had problems switching between them. And that, I think, was another reason why it didn't quite gel with me. But let's talk about Bond's soft power. Because Arthur, in your career with the Foreign Office, part of your job was to improve the way Britain is regarded abroad. Will No Time to Die, do you think, help or hinder with that? Well, I think almost every Bond film helps. And and just to give a practical case study, whenever a Bond movie comes out, there isn't a British embassy or high commission in the world that doesn't host some kind of relatively glitzy screening because it's, it's just it's such an easy thing to do. So I remember we did that in Trinidad and Tobago for Spectre. And as it happens, it was a, it was a big fundraiser for a, a really great charity. But, but it, you know, it got lots of coverage and there were pictures in the papers and all that kind of thing. So even if the content of the movies could be quite dark and maybe uh, particularly in the more recent era, you know, it exposes governments perhaps doing the wrong thing rather than the sort of simple heroism of the earlier eras. It's just a brilliant brand. It sort of reminds everybody that this global thing that we've all heard about is is very British. And of course, the films tend to be made in Britain as well. So it so it's just in the sort of technical filmmaking side, it, it it helps that. So it's it's yeah, it's, it's one of the really good soft power things like the German made mini car. They're made in Britain, but it's striking how little of the Bond films actually tend to take place in Britain. You've got MI5, Secret Service headquarters usually. You've got Scotland in Skyfall. But is it sort of telling how much of Bond has to take place somewhere else? Well, I suppose part of that, I think, is is just, uh, of course, all respect to my home country, Britain just isn't exciting enough, is it? You know, Bond movies are all about danger, glamour, secret hideouts of global villains. You can't imagine one of those sort of really bad guys having an underground lair in Surrey, can you? So I think that that they're they're rather forced to to go further afield. And again, I think that helps with the soft power side of it because it's very global. Viewers all over the world can relate to what they're watching. And but the Britishness is is sort of fairly simple to, to get just in the accents and the you know the cars that he drives and that sort of thing. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. 
On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Another thing that's changed in the recent movies is that MI6 has made bad decisions, sometimes spectacularly so. I mean, this came up earlier in the Craig era, but this time, of course, Ray Fiennes has, has got involved in this massive bio-warfare plan that has gone spectacularly wrong after it was stolen. And to me, that feels revealing. It kind of moves the films beyond simple British boosterism, and it makes the relationship, Britain's relationship with the rest of the world much more complicated. And in fact, sometimes, you know, at times we're even invited to laugh at Britishness and flag-waving bulldog expression of Britishness. There's that scene when HQ has been blown up and Bond meets Judy Dench again and she's got that horrible China bulldog ornament on her desk and he points out that it seems to have been the only thing that survived the blast. Does that change, though, Arthur, reflect the way that the secret services operate? Is there, is there a sort of more doubt, in a way, that creeps in that the Bond films is trying to reflect. Yes, definitely. I think there are two really key pieces of things uh, that happened in in the real world which have affected this. One was the CIA embracing torture as a standard method of extracting information from detainees. And the other was British intelligence, along with the CIA and others, producing fake intelligence to justify the war in Iraq. Now, in both of those cases, we could argue for hours about the details of it and how it happened, But I think that fundamentally altered the relationship that people have in Western uh, liberal democracies, people have with their intelligence services. We may still believe that they're full of heroic people doing a difficult job, but we're well aware that sometimes they get things very badly wrong. And the the ramifications of that, think about the, the effect of the invasion of Iraq and so on are massive. Now, James Bond is all fantasy, and what makes it so good is that it's it's so far from, from the boring reality of people staring at databases, which is what most intelligence work is about. But I do think that there is some read across that the filmmakers have to reflect that in the way they plot the movies and just the whole atmosphere. You have to portray this rather darker and, and much more kind of flawed institution. Ian, what's particularly British about Bond? I mean, given that he's often not in Britain, is it his willingness to roam the world and the kind of denial in many films of any kind of inner emotional life? Or is it in some way the strange fact that he's not really English because he's half Scottish, half Swiss, but he does such a good job of performing that fantasy of, of Englishness? How do you see it? I think performance is a good way of thinking about it. One can imagine the audience response in 1977 when Roger Moore's James Bond skis off that slope at the beginning of The Spy Love Me and the Union Jack parachute opens up. I mean, talk about the worst secret agent in the world to just <laughs> plaster his national identity all over you know, his means of escape. And, and, and that's partly what, what, what I think endears certainly British people to it. But the, the, there is that sense of like bomb 
bombastic um, nationalism. And, and we feel this with the kind of the strains and the brassy strains of kind of the Tom Jones and the Shirley Bassies, you know, who, you know, of course, Welch, both of them, their songs are thought of as, as, as being kind of anthems to Britain's glory days of empire. I think the fact that Bond himself is rather interestingly, the result of a kind of a, a mixed marriage, so to speak. He's not British, but, you know, his mum is Swiss and his dad is Scottish. I find it very interesting that Bond is often used, particularly in kind of more recent debates around uh, Brexit and British nationalism, as a kind of an idea of what is properly British. This is proper Britain. And of course, we, you know, it doesn't take too much to, to kind of understand the rhetoric there. We're talking about white, we're talking about a certain class, we're talking about a, a certain demographic, aren't we? We're talking about a kind of a, a, a sort of aggressive heterosexuality. So I think the kind of the, the sort of the uber nationalist defenders of Bond as an icon of Britishness, it's very much that kind of conservative instinct, that staid belief that Britain is one thing and one thing only. And of course, the irony is the icon of those far right leaning conservative um, pundits in James Bond, he himself is not even British. In fact, more times on screen, he's been played by actors who aren't even British themselves. So obviously, Pierce Brosnan was Irish, George Lazenby was or is Australian, and uh, Connery himself is Scottish. It's, you know, half the time he's been played by non-British actors. So the idea I find quite ironic that Bond should be considered this eminent icon of, of Britishness. It's undermined by the mythology. It's undermined by the kind of the casting choices they make. Ian, would Ian Fleming himself recognise the Craig version of Bond or has it departed so far from the Sean Connery 60s version? He is a completely different character now. I was thinking about this recently because I recently watched Honor Majesty's Secret Service after seeing No Time to Die. And I think in terms of physical likeness, George Lazenby, and this might be very surprising, is most like the Bond that Fleming envisaged. Fleming very much thought of the kind of Hoagie Carmichael figure with that, that, that kind of comma, that curl of, of dark hair coming down over his, his forehead as being like uh, his ideal of James Bond. In terms of the rough and tough grittiness of Craig, there's no denying that as an actor, as a performer, he has brought a level of realism, of brutality to the role that I think Fleming, who was very much a sadomasochist really, would have not only appreciated, but probably reveled I think where Fleming might have turned in his grave is the kind of the more schmaltzy family elements of uh, No Time to Die, particularly that utterly galling line where Leia Sadu's character, Madeleine Swan, turns to her daughter who speaks French for the entire film, but then suddenly decides to address her in English and says, let me tell you a story about a man called Bond, James Bond. And I thought, actually, Fleming is probably cringing very hard if he has any sense of, of, of what's going on with his character. I think... If I could divide it like this, I think the kind of iconography around Bond, I think the character's treatment of Bond, I think the way we think of Bond, uh, on the one hand, Fleming would have been very happy with this idea of kind of his creation becoming a kind of a, a sort of a national icon. On the other, I think that kind of attention, the, the lack of sort of down-to-earth, gritty realism, the privacy of a character like that, and the privacy of a man like Ian Fleming, I think he probably would have been slightly galled by it in that sense. But in terms of kind of the, the recognisability of the character, it, it, this has always been a kind of a, a kind of an ongoing debate, isn't it? Connery is considered to be the definitive Bond, maybe and only because 
he was the first. Everybody sort of brushes over Lazenby as that one-time Bond, although Honor Majesty's Secret Service is one of the closest to Fleming's novels. So when we talk about who's the closest Bond or the Bond that Fleming might recognize, there's an argument to be made that Lazenby's sole effort in Honor Majesty's Secret Service is spot on. You know, Arthur, you mentioned the kind of the pantomime era earlier on of, of, of Roger Moore's Bond. And, and I, I think it's probably for nothing that the majority of people think of Moore as, as the worst Bond, or let's say the majority of people of, of a certain generation. And certainly for me, none of his films, fun though they are, rank in my top five. But look at Timothy Dalton. Dalton is doing what Craig has been lauded for now in the last 15 years. Dalton was the first to bring that gritty, hard-edged realism. And perhaps it was sold less well to us because of Dalton's Shakespearean training. You know, he's very much a Shakespearean actor playing the part of this action hero. And we see that, that kind of stiffness in The Living Daylights. He's allowed to be a little bit more untethered when it comes to License to Kill, which is one of the most brutal films in the series and the only one to have been graded uh, 15s, uh, to be given a 15s rating. Brosnan, a kind of homage to all that's come before him, a sort of splicing, a hodgepodge of the brutality of Connery, the charm of Moore, the debonairness of Dalton. And he, he certainly has his own kind of suave formula. But I think in terms of actor, in terms of performance, in terms of the kind of uh, realisation of the character, Craig in Casino Royale is the closest thing to it, not to mention that kind of bluntness, that the kind of blunt instrument nature of Bond who's finding his feet. And, and again, I, I cited it a number of times, but that scene at the end, I'm going to spoil more than just No Time to Die here, so if people haven't seen Casino Royale, block your ears. But that scene at the end of Casino Royale, after he tugs Vesper's body out of, of, of the building in Venice that's collapsed, and he's trying to revive her, you know, that, that moment where he realises that she is dead, his greatest love, the woman who's just betrayed him, has died. There's something in Craig's eyes in this moment that is just utterly terrifying and astoundingly uh, insightful, I think, when it comes to the character that Bond is. There is this maelstrom of emotion. Fleming wrote him as a kind of a man who's deadening himself with alcohol and, and, and fatty foods and, and, you know, eggs and, and coffee, all this kind of stuff. But behind Craig's eyes in that scene, there is just this maelstrom of emotion that he is trying to contain. And that, of course, as a character, we know Bond as being one of, of restraint, being one of a kind of repression. And I think it's not since Casino Royale that we've seen such a, a good performance from Bond. And, and my, my reservations about No Time to Die aside, I do think it was the best screen performance of a Bond, a Bond that most closely resembles the real man that I think Ian Fleming was striving to represent. Yeah, in terms of a satisfying movie, I mean, Casino Royale and I think Skyfall for me would be up there. And then, you know, as you say, Roger Moore, the Moonraker was, was a low point for me in the <laughs> Bond franchise. I mean, that was, that was, I don't know whether it was just location, but the, the space, which is clearly not the place for Bond. He should never be in space, but it was, it was dire. Craig himself was asked whether the next Bond should be a woman and he said no, that he wanted to see a movie franchise that had just as good a role for a woman. Ian, do you think the next Bond should be female or should it be a man of colour or should it be a woman of colour? So the question is really two questions. Do I think versus will it be the case? Do yeah. I think <laughs> that Idris Elba would be the perfect Bond? About five years ago, yes. He is everything 
that we would look for in a in, in a sort of actor playing that part that 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 kind of brutality you you'd no doubt that a, an actor like Idris Elba could play a part of a killer that suaveness that charm that, that kind of debonair do i think Idris Elba or an actor of color will play bond i don't think so and nor do i think will the producers cast a woman as bond many will agree with daniel craig and say actually it's not about remolding james bond to fit more modern uh, and progressive sensibilities it's actually about writing scripts for female action stars or action stars who are not white is really the point here and i suppose the the, the fact that we're having this debate at all i think is you know shows us the importance of the bond franchise to not just cinema but action cinema that everything is is held against it as the standard it's really interesting because i think in in the craig era we have seen more of a move towards uh, or a nod towards these contemporary uh, civic sensibilities so for instance casting african american actor jeffrey wright as felix leiter is one such step casting black british actor Naomi Harris as Miss Moneypenny is another step. And now, of course, we follow through with, with um, Lashana Lynch, black British actress who plays Nomi, the new 007. So in a sense, the producers are getting to have their cake and eating it. Because for the first time in the franchise, we have a differentiation between James Bond, the character, and 007, the codename. We now have a black female 007, but James Bond is still the white man he always was. So there is an element, I think, here of, of kind of having their cake and eating it. That said, there is potential for division here. Now, do I think we're going to see the spawning of, of a sort of Marvel franchise or Marvel Universe-esque Bond franchise? I don't think so. I think what remains to be seen now is not only how we move forward in a kind of a, a civically minded, a sort of socially progressive way that encompasses stories that are about more than just, you know, the middle class, average, heterosexual, white male. How we encompass stories in, in larger franchise cinema about uh, alterity, about other genders, about other races, cultures, sexualities. And I think it's interesting that the Bond films have become the kind of, not just the linchpin for this debate, but almost as the standard bearer how will larger mainstream cinema come up to uh, whatever standards they might say the Bond films have set with respect to those ideas? Arthur, you said earlier that you would probably be content if there wasn't another Bond movie in the franchise. But assuming that there is, which you know apparently there will be, if Declining Britain can put together the means for another one, um, where would you like it to go next? Well, I think one possibility that Ian mentioned that they might go back and and sort of pick up the Bond story in, maybe during the Cold War or the you know the the fifties or something. I think that that could be quite interesting. Um, but maybe all all I'm doing there is saying that I quite like Le Carre and and they've sort of you know you could drift into that world. But I think one thing worth thinking about, which is it's a sort of it's a commercial question is as i understand it amazon has just bought mgm the people who who make the bond films now amazon of course is you know the world's biggest company or or close to it anyway and and i'm sure there is going to be an aim to try to create a much bigger sort of franchise uh, just in the way that Star Wars has has become more than just a, se- a sequence of films about uh, one group of characters. So I wonder whether there will be, you know, different offshoots. And if there were, I'd love there to be a film about Anna de Armas' character, the, the, the Cuban agent who was uh, incredibly funny and, and obviously super capable. And then that would just be an interesting sort of alternative pathway. Arthur and Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
And I'm going again this weekend and stealing myself to sob again at the ending. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful and we do read it. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. We will return. This podcast was brought to you by Bunker agents Ros Taylor and Arthur Snell. Andrew Harrison, Jacob Archbold and Yolanda Sofronievich appear on behalf of Her Majesty's Secret Service. Alex Reese thinks the royal family needs a bit of improvement. And Barbara Broccoli, if you're listening, if you need someone new to play Q, I'm available. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.